Wood McKenzie's Solar and Energy Storage Summit is back, taking place at the Palace Hotel in San Francisco on June 21st and 22nd. Join expert solar and storage analysts for discussions with leading grid-scale utilities, solar and energy storage developers, and federal policymakers. How is the IRA catapulting the development of solar and storage in North America? How can we continue to build a productive environment for solar and energy storage as we move forward with the energy transition? Expect two days of panel discussions, presentations, and workshops as we explore the opportunities for solar and storage in the coming decades. If you're interested in sponsoring or attending, find out more at woodmac.com events. It's getting to the point where you literally need to route more power to, to a region because of growing demand. It shows you that we're kind of buckling under new challenges that we've never faced before. People take the availability of power for granted, but now we're reaching levels of growth that are just kind of creating this new stress. So it makes you think. This is The Interchange Recharged. I'm David Bam Miller. In February this year, we were joined on The Interchange by Mesa, an initiative from Google's Sidewalk Labs. Mesa is a product that automates energy savings in commercial buildings. Practically what it means is it automates savings on heating, cooling, ventilation, and shared key outlets across buildings. Their mission is to drive energy efficiencies in buildings through the use of data and smart meters. A few months on, and we're shining the spotlight back on the digitization of the power sector. The energy transition will require a myriad of innovations working in tandem to achieve net zero. Updating and maximizing efficiencies in the grid is key. Digitization is transforming the way energy is produced, directed, and spent. Power plants using real-time data to drive efficiency, smart grids directing energy where needed, and data models to help us make sense of the market. We're in an era where we need it all. Ben Hertz-Shargell is global head of GridEdge, an initiative from Wood McKenzie that covers distributed hardware and software innovations in energy. There are a number of use cases for why utilities need these kind of grid sensors. And some of these are related to the ones that, that we may be using, but there's really a range of different sensors that are coming into play for utilities and making the fundamental action of the utility more digital and a little bit less kind of the analog past. From new devices and homes to sensors and vast commercial buildings, the data explosion is helping us make the most efficient decisions based on market factors. I like to think through the parallels that we have between our cloud computing and then what we're trying to do with our grid. That's Matthew Boyda, Senior Vice President of Global Power and Renewables Research at Woodmac. When things start happening, and by things I mean market events and what I like to call atypical situations on the grid, folks need to be able to ramp up and understand and potentially deploy additional resources to compute on data to understand what's going on. As digitization sweeps the energy industry, what does it mean for utilities? What does it mean for customers? On the interchange today, we look at the importance of real-time data for power markets and the grid. We'll explore the transition from data centers to the cloud and what that means for climate change. And Ben and Matt will examine the role of machine learning in driving energy efficiency across the globe. Ben, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Matt, great to have you join us as well. Yeah, likewise. First topic for today is the the importance of real-time data for the power markets in the grid. So Matt, why don't we start with you? Where are you seeing kind of the most rapid progress and the most innovation coming from 
uh, when it comes to digitization? Great question. I mean, we're really in the heart of, or the beginning of the energy transition. So uh, there, there are a lot of different um, projects and investments that are happening across the industry and everything from crypto farms being built out and um, data centers that are supplying all of our cloud services that we need. Uh, and then ultimately on the supply side, the behind the meter type of growth between uh, EV batteries, uh, behind the meter storage and solar, all that what's happening is it's just creating this explosion of data and, and new kind of players in the digitization of the power industry and then how to basically create the prices and then create uh, economic kind of growth within the power industry. And I think one of the things that the wholesale power markets are really trying to continue to bring that transparency and, and kind of insights into these markets to help these various players understand what's happening. But because traditionally the wholesale power markets have been traditionally opaque and with the more granular level of data and exposing kind of the private or exposing new types of data, they have to also walk that very thin line of not exposing anything that's private or anti-competitive to the market. So they're really focusing on congestion um, in the wholesale power market, what's causing the congestion, what's driving it. Uh, and it could be a lot of the new things that I talked about and the investments in cryptos and, and, and uh, data centers or just high demand points and the changing dynamics of the flow on the grid um, and the subsequent impact to the prices that uh, ultimately people have to pay. So it starts at kind of at the wholesale power market, but it does flow down to the individuals like you and I. So Ben, in terms of digital infrastructure, uh, what are some of the advancements that you're seeing on that front and how it can really help us on the energy transition? Yeah. I mean, I think we can start with just kind of what is digital infrastructure because it's kind of a new term in a sense. For me, it is the combination of the software um, that's running a lot of the hardware that's out there. It's the computing resources, um, like think of what's going on in the cloud uh, that's enabling the software to run, uh, the data warehouses and databases, and then it's the communication networks that kind of enable these devices and systems to talk to each other. And so when we think of the types of infrastructure that's out there, uh, for utilities, we're looking at DER management systems or DERMs. These are the um, software systems that allow utilities to orchestrate and monitor various types of uh, assets on their system, their own and their customers. It includes meter data analytics um, so that utilities can kind of derive greater value from the data they're already ingesting. It's advanced distribution management systems or ADMS, which are kind of large scale systems that orchestrate lots of and kind of combine other systems within the utility. And then they are the data fabrics, kind of so to speak, that combine what lives on premise at a utility in terms of their um, IT and OT systems and what happens in the cloud. And so these kind of uh, middleware that enable you to straddle on premise in the cloud is, is really important and it's kind of core infrastructure or becoming core infrastructure to a utility. When it comes to an asset owner, you have market forecasting software, which is becoming increasingly critical to, to have to have a general sense, at least short term, what's happening in the market. Um, and ideally longer term. It's bidding optimization engines that you know take sometimes tricky assets like battery storage and that have kind of specific constraints and know how to you know bid appropriately in, in, in a kind of advantageous way and in a risk averse way. And then you have the software that runs virtual power plants. That is basically there is no thing there. There's a bunch of devices in the field that may not have been part of the VPP yesterday, but today they're part of it. And so the software 
And this sort of lifeblood of data is what enables that device to be part of this common virtual power plant and, and function and compete with traditional ones. And I guess the final example of kind of what is this digital infrastructure on the e-mobility side, this would be the, the platforms that are owned by um, what are called EMSPs or e-mobility service providers. These are the companies uh, and the platforms that enable you to drive up to a charging station that may not be one that you have a relationship with and just plug in your vehicle and charge without showing a fob or a credit card or an app. And it's that sort of middleware and communication that is, you know, again, it's not the thing itself. It's not the thing uh, kind of charging your car. It's, it's not the power plant that's producing, that's generating the power that charges your car, but it's the smarts that enable all of these things to work together, um, which is increasingly important as everything in the energy sector becomes more interdependent and more constrained due to the changing resource mix. Great. So uh, Matt, can you explain a little bit about Woodmac's short-term market data and forecasting capabilities and how important that is to traders, asset operators? Woodmac's short-term team is in a very unique position. So um, there's all different types of data out there. There's the sensor network data that our sensors are out in the field and the collects that's proprietary and understanding what's happening on the grid. Uh, there's a the market data that everyone is able to see and understand when prices get printed, which where, where are the price movements, what's causing somewhat like the congestion, what's causing those price movements potentially. And then there's a lot of sophisticated vendors out there and, and Woodmac works with a, a couple of those. But the reason to lay that out like that is the short-term analyst team and, and that builds those forecasts, uh, they really take a fundamentals-driven approach to forecasting the uh, prices and understanding the market vent drivers that are happening out there. And uh, it's a little bit different than a lot of other, let's say, companies out there that take a statistical approach or machine learning. Now, there's always pros and cons to either approach, but at the end of the day, um, our analysts are able, by combining that data set and 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 looking at what's potentially happening or what happened yesterday and understanding uh, what caused the various market events, because usually it's not just one particular input into the assumptions, it's, it's multiple scenarios or multiple overlaying scenarios that cause a particular price to move. They put all those pieces of the puzzle together so they can provide the market an understanding of this is what caused the prices yesterday. This is what we're thinking is going to happen today based on our proprietary sensor network. And this is where we see the market tomorrow. So by pulling together those, those very large pieces of the puzzle, it gives our customers a level of comfort of understanding, okay, I, I understand why they missed and I accept their, their reasoning why potentially analysts missed or made the right call yesterday. And uh, they see it continuing or going away throughout the day or tomorrow. It doesn't matter how you participate in these markets. Uh, you can be an asset owner. You can be a trader. You have different positions that you're managing through in these wholesale power markets, as long as you are getting this information from the analysts and, and, and getting comfort with this information, um, you can then make your upcoming forward positions and adjust accordingly based on what's happening in these markets. So by taking the fundamentals approach and in providing the context on price movements, context is a really big key for us. Our customers have, have an insight and, and we like to believe an edge on the rest of the market. Yep, you're right. Context is huge. Ben, you touched on this earlier, uh, virtual power plants. How can they leverage this type of information? 
Yeah. I think the first thing to say is that uh, virtual power plants are at a fairly early stage of their development. There's obviously a lot talked about them and there's a lot of excitement and a lot of new deals and projects. But in terms of kind of delivering grid services and, and market products in the way that traditional power plants do, uh, there's a way to go. A lot of that comes down to a lot of kind of regulatory challenges. You know, a lot of that is being addressed through FERC Order 22, 22 proceedings. But right now, of the services delivered are generally kind of capacity, dayhead energy, in some cases, ancillary services. And so there's not a tremendous use of real-time data. The use cases are increasing though. And there are a few that are, I think, worth noting. The first is that kind of to step back, virtual power plant operators are focused primarily not on the market, but on making sure their customers earn money and, are, and stay with them. And sometimes that means addressing on-bill costs of their customers potentially a you know a homeowner or a uh, commercial and industrial customer and dealing with their costs before thinking about how can I provide a service to the market. And so, especially for commercial and industrial customers, demand charges make up a significant fraction, often more than half of their bill. And in many markets, for example, in Texas and ERCOT and in PJM's territory, these customers are exposed to a, it's called a, a coincident peak demand charge, meaning you are measured and assessed a fee based on how much load you are, you know, putting on the system at the moment when the system is is most flexed um, under the greatest stress, and so being able to predict that time and reduce consumption or to fire up a behind the meter generator of some type is extremely valuable. So having that kind of short term forecasting, either day of or day ahead, can be extremely valuable to enable these um, uh, VPP operators to save their customers money. And the other sort of um, typical use case is. When they are bidding their customers into the energy market, usually the day ahead market and sometimes the real time market, and in, in some cases also operating reserve markets, it's important to understand how to bid, what is tomorrow likely to be. Do we want to kind of play day ahead or do we want to wait until real time? And so having a view on those kinds of market prices are important for making sure that you are dispatching and leveraging your customers and sometimes imposing things on them, such as shutting down a factory line or you know, reducing the air conditioning in a building at the most important times because the customers within a virtual power plant often are inconvenienced by uh, the actions that take place. And so these companies are extremely mindful of only acting when the price is really the most advantageous and worth it. Yeah. And just one thing I wanted to add, I mean, everything Ben laid out was, is dead on. And What's encouraging about this is that thought process that Ben just walked through for the VPPs and, and whatnot, that's mirroring how traditionally a power plant would operate. And it's actually encouraging to see that it doesn't matter if you are a traditional, very large power plant and you're having that same thought process around, do I sell in the day ahead or do I take it to real time? I mean, the, the same thought process and approach and strategy can be used throughout the whole value chain which in, in the grand scheme of things makes things a little bit more transparent and helpful for these new players to emerge in these markets. So Ben, grid sensors, obviously critically important to utilities. What are some of the data sources that they're using or, or types and the use cases for them? Yeah. So there are uh, a number of use cases for why utilities need these kind of grid sensors. And some of these are related to the ones that, that we may be using, but there's really a range of different sensors that are coming into play for utilities and, and kind of making the you know, fundamental action of a utility more digital and a little bit less kind of the analog past. First use case belongs to distribution utilities. And this is 
the fact that these utilities, I mean, surprising to many, don't have a lot of visibility below the substation, closer to the customer. And so they can get that kind of visibility using line sensors, which are you know sampling their lines at any point in the network, or increasingly they can use smart meters. And utilities today that are deploying smart meters are deploying a later version of the technology, which is usually referred to as AMI 2.0. And there's different kinds of capabilities that come with this, but uh, most important is the ability to sample the voltage and current waveforms at a kind of higher resolution. So you can have more fine-grained knowledge of exactly what's going on in that customer site. And that's it. that lets you do really interesting things like do anomaly detection uh, to check for issues or what's called volt var optimization, which means you can essentially deliver the same kind of power, kind of satisfy all the customer's needs while delivering less power and delivering it more efficiently. So these types of data that you're getting from either from line sensors or from AMI is kind of a new toolkit that utilities have. And what's exciting about AMI 2.0 is that a lot of this can happen on the meter itself. It doesn't need to go get backhauled to the utility because it's very expensive in many respects, but in, in particular in terms of the bandwidth of its communication network to send all that data back. So this is usually called edge computing, how utilities try to push more to the edge of the grid. Next use case is, again, for your distribution utilities uh, would be low disaggregation. This means you're pulling in all this increasingly smart meter data. Maybe it's 15-minute readings. Maybe it's hourly readings. There's a lot of further data in there that you can mine that's not immediately apparent. That might be the presence of DERs. Like, is there a EV charging at this home? Is there solar at this home? Because in some cases, the utility may not be aware of that. And it lets you do things like, for instance, number one, just improve your kind of planning operations to know exactly what you have in the field. Where are DERs? Where are where there might be heat pumps or additional types of load, but it also lets utilities target customers in a smart way. So if you know there's a heat pump there, you can specifically target that customer for some sort of offering around incentives or programs for heat pumps. And so the data underlying this, of course, is just the, the meter data. A couple, I think, really interesting other use cases um, for, for sensor data that are used by transmission utilities are, number one, uh, the need to detect and localize faults. And this is becoming even more tricky as you have this changing resource mix, you have greater renewables, there's a lot more kind of variability on the grid. And so I think it's, it's a much more challenging exercise to figure out moment to moment exactly what's happening and to det detect issues as they arise. And a kind of a related challenge uh, to the, the changing resource mix is a reduction in inertia, which is essentially the uh, fewer thermal plants on the grid that effectively stabilize the grid to, you know, disruptions in either uh, demand or supply. And so when you, when you lose those thermal units, which we in many ways want to happen, we want more renewable penetration and storage, you lose that inertia. And so understanding what it is, is is critical. And so both of these use cases of understanding of detecting faults and of uh, monitoring inertia come from these very sophisticated sensors called synchrophasers or PMUs, phaser monitoring units. And so GE, for example, is working with National Grid in the UK on a, on a pretty innovative project to uh, measure inertia in real time so the National Grid can react and be aware and, and basically manage their transmission system in such a way that they account for the amount of inertia that's present. And um, one other technology that I think Matt can speak to better than I can, but which is incredibly exciting, is dynamic line ratings. And so this is using sensor data to manage the thermal properties and the SAG of transmission conductors. And just by knowing that information, you can deduce what is the effective rating? What's the true rating of that line right now? 
And it lets you, if you were to use that rating rather than the very conservative static one, you can eke much more transmission capacity out of an existing line. And transmission is by far, transmission capacity is by far the greatest scarcity right now, limiting the energy transition. And so if we have a means of using you know, grid sensors and data and, and intelligence to you know, expand transmission capacity cheaply, that's a tremendous opportunity. Yeah. W- w- what's exciting about that is, as Ben was alluding to it, that the company out there right now is, is Line Vision, and they're really working closely on trying to understand the dynamic line rating and the potential capacity because it's, it's just, it's unbelievable. And, and hopefully we get into a little bit around what's happening between the, the high demand points as, it, as this energy transition continues. But to understand the true capacity and not just the, uh, I'd say, modeled capacity is going to be game-changing and in, in helping us with this transition. Yeah, we had Line Vision on the show early last year. And so it was a great discussion and, and looking forward to seeing how that evolves. Kind of switching gears, you know, one of the things I think everybody's familiar with is moving to the cloud, whether it's business, whether it's personal, uh, everybody's familiar with it. Ben, how is the transition to the cloud going to impact the industry and the utilities? So if you go to Distribute Tech, uh, which I enjoy doing, and you talk to a lot of the, the vendors who are delivering solutions to utilities, to the largest utilities, it really is remarkable how much of the conversation is around the cloud. That seems to be like that sort of technology platform is so critical to what they are delivering. And so, you know, companies like Siemens, Schneider Electric, a lot of the solutions, the most advanced solutions they are delivering are cloud native, meaning while the companies, while they, they may not be wedded to the cloud and they, they can operate on-premise within a utilities footprint, they are leveraging the unique structures and kind of organization of the cloud to kind of optimize software to that environment. And so as utilities work with companies like this, where more and more of their kind of preferred solutions live there, utilities will indirectly be migrating to the cloud. Whereas today, or at least in a legacy basis, all of their software and their their IT and OT really was on-premise. And so there are very significant advantages for utilities to, to make this change, to kind of transition to the cloud. Number one is continuous deployment, meaning in kind of legacy software delivery, you might have minor releases, major releases that are infrequent, and it's often a big deal to go into a customer site and kind of apply those upgrades. With the cloud, the vendor can update all the time, continuously, in a really rigorous, but in a, in a kind of agile way. And that makes it much easier as the client to always have the latest and greatest. And it also means that you don't have to buy an upgrade because you're always getting the latest and greatest. And the other kind of benefit is around kind of the flexibility, the elasticity of the cloud, um, where you're getting, your application is getting as much resources as they need at that moment. Whereas if you are a utility and you've invested in your data center, you know, moment to moment, either your data center is not being fully utilized. And so you kind of have your, you know, it's not being efficiently used, or maybe it's not up to the task that you have for it or that you would otherwise have developed because it just doesn't have the capacity. So those are kind of key benefits. I will say that the procurement side for utilities is tricky because buying software is much easier to capitalize, which is, of course, more attractive to utilities. It's much more challenging to to attempt to capitalize a software as a service license, especially if it's on a shorter term and it becomes an operating expense, so it's just not as attractive to utilities. In some cases, utilities will go for longer terms, like three-year or longer contracts, and regulators will sometimes allow that to be capitalized, but not always. And so to me, I mean, it, it makes you see the virtue in performance-based rate making where, you know, as opposed to today's uh, cost of service rate making in which 
it's kind of transparent to the utility and to the regulator what you're going to label software as a service, like a cloud-based solution. And you know you have your set of metrics to operate against, so you have your costs. And if you can deliver, if a, if a cloud solution is going to get you more performance at a lower cost, you're inclined to do that, and uh, everybody wins. Yeah, I like I like to think through the parallels that we have between our cloud computing, and then what we're trying to do with our grid and and uh, around demand response and being flexible to what's happening. And they kind of they they run in parallel. I mean, quite honestly, because. When things are start happening, and by things I mean market events and and uh, what I like to call atypical situations in, on the grid, folks need to be able to ramp up and understand and potentially deploy additional resources to compute on data to understand what's going on. It's the same thing with demand response or, or making sure that we don't have any brownouts or blackouts. We have to adjust on the spot to uh, respond to what's happening on the grid. So. Just I kind of smirk a little bit because I feel like it's uh, they kind of run in parallel. Or they they have, there's a lot of similarities between the uh, strategies. Yeah. So Matt, I've got to imagine that having grid related data housed by a third party, you know, with uh, additional data from other other utilities. I mean, I think that that would probably cause a little bit of angst. Are there any security implications of having all this stuff moved to the cloud? Yeah, I mean, quite simply, any computer connected to the network is theoretically in the cloud. I know it's, there's a lot more technical details behind that, but um, if, if your on-prem server is connected to the global network, you're theoretically um, exposed to other computers and other networks out there. And there's really good security services and all of that, but at the end of the day, you, you are part of the global network. Um, there are ways around that. You could, there's, there's private connection networks and, and uh, I mean, to call it even homeowners or home users use VPNs these days. But yeah, so going back to my utility days and working at utility, and I, I heard that same argument now for 20 years, that if it's in our house, it's really secure and it's safe. That's not the case of if, if, your, network, if your computers are connected to the network. So uh, I know it's, we're getting there uh, from a regulatory and safety and, and all that perspective and understanding how cloud can help. But to me, it, it seems, I, I like to think that we can get over this hurdle. Yeah, just to kind of like echo that of the kind of the, the sense that if it's in my house, if it's kind of walled off, it's safe and everything out there is is kind of exposed. The way that I kind of think about the on-premise solution to this is it's a trust but verify approach where you're saying, once you're in my house, I'm going to trust you. You can go from server to server and application to application, but I'm going to verify you at the door. I have this big firewall, you know, whatever the system is, the perimeter that tries to keep the bad guys out. Whereas the kind of framework that is really taking hold in the cloud today is called the zero trust framework. And it really says that every single endpoint, you know, every single element of a cloud environment has its own sort of safety precautions associated. So even if you compromise one, doesn't mean you can leap around and can cause this damage. So I think that is a kind of advantage you have security-wise, somewhat ironically, being in the cloud versus being on-premise. Another kind of key advantage of being in the cloud is this, this continuous deployment thing. It allows security patches to be sent instantaneously as soon as either once something has happened or in anticipation by the vendor. Whereas if something is living in the on an on-premise kind of walled-off physical location, it's it's harder to access that and to apply those patches when you really need them. And um, the way I would speak to those people who kind of feel like having stuff in the cloud is exposed and it's just more risky is think about the open source movement, where the idea is you can you put code out there for everybody to see which yes, makes it more visible, but then you have all the smart people go out and look for vulnerabilities or defects in it. 
and then you fix them. And it's kind of only by really putting it out there and getting the best people to like vet your stuff and then to improve your stuff that you should really feel confident. And that's kind of the, the premise of a lot of how the cloud works in terms of having very well-documented, clear ways of this is how we secure stuff. And it's, it's the best in breed way of doing it. And so there's always vulnerabilities, but it's, they're the smallest that you're going to find. And to Matt's kind of original point, I do think there's a difference when you start leaving the utilities center, the kind of control center, where they're kind of IT infrastructure and you leave the cloud. And now you talk about DERs in the field. You talk about data that's living either you know, on a customer's laptop or, or in a device or on the public network. That's where things are really exposed. And so that is a, a real legitimate vulnerability. And you have companies like Enterix who own uh, private LTE spectrum and who work with utilities to create private LTE networks so that they can, you know, really feel more secure about the communication between endpoints, between devices in their world. And, you know, they would make the argument that, listen, you, you put a power plant on a secure net communication network, you don't put that on the public internet. Why would you do the same thing for a virtual power plant? If that VPP is is equally part of your resource mix that you're counting on, yeah, Ben, I really like your analogy. I've got three dogs, and that's kind of my verification system for people coming to the front door. <laughs> so, <laughs> so looking beyond energy, I mean, the entire globe is going digital, which obviously creates a lot of demand for these data centers. Uh, Matt, what's your view on the forecast? for these uh, data centers and how we kind of get these enormous facilities, you know, how they fit on the grid. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's becoming a very hot topic so much. So our, um, our short-term power analysts, our PJM team, they did an entire special topic on this basically frontier of what we're coming up against. And they did a study of the DC metro area in what's called the Dominion demand zone. And I mean, traditionally, that's a climate-driven demand zone with uh, significant summer peaks. But if you think about it, all these data centers that are being developed in the area, where does most of their demand come from? Well, it's the big air conditioners that are trying to cool uh, all these servers. So you're just compounding the issue for that particular zone. And this is a targeted zone where a lot of these data centers are being built. Um, so much so that they are, our analysts are predicting a doubling of demand requirements in that zone by 2027, which is incredible. And the data center demand itself in the region increasing by one and a half times by 2027, which in partnership with a fact around outside of the data centers, they're not actually forecasting a lot of increase in demand. So a lot of the demand that they're forecasting is coming from those data centers in that region. Now, that all sounds interesting uh, on its own, but I think what's really driving this the conversation right now, though, is the fact that PJM right now on the books has a $600 million transmission project to try to get power to this area. Um, and that's targeted for June 1st, 2025 to get delivered. So we're kind of in the in-between time right now of, of trying to serve up the power to these big data centers. And so much so, the congestion costs that these data centers are pulling and causing on the market, they've tripled when looking from 2021 to 2022, just in that zone. So as we build more data centers, and, and as we've just talked through the need of these very large data centers for all the reasons Ben went through, uh, we also have to understand that the real life impact to our power grid and how are we going to manage that and how are we ultimately supply all the power to these data centers. And so we've heard a lot of from Google and Amazon, the cloud providers that are trying to decarbonize these data centers. 
Ben, what are some of the challenges that they're facing with the increased demand? I mean, these are huge power users or energy users. What are some of the challenges that they're facing as they're trying to also take part in the energy transition and decarbonize these facilities? I mean, uh, just some of the numbers that Matt just threw out are pretty remarkable. I mean, just show you just the challenges of, of the demand growth and it's getting to the point where you literally need to route more power to, to a region because of growing demand. It shows you that we're kind of buckling under new challenges that we've never faced before. People, I think, take the availability of power for granted, but now we're reaching levels of growth that are just kind of uh, creating this new stress. So it's, um, it makes you think. Data centers globally are around 1% of uh, electricity demand. So kind of across the whole you know, world, they're a huge source of electricity demand. I think in terms of decarbonization, so let's first speak about, we can get to kind of renewable energy, but number one, they're focused on energy efficiency of these data centers. So around half, a little bit more than half of their energy use is coming directly from the chips from essentially running these um, servers. And uh, a little bit less than that, um, as Matt mentioned before, is really about cooling, cooling these servers, um, which takes a tremendous amount of, uh, of energy. And if you compare what are called the hyperscale data centers, uh, which are the ones that are you know operated by the, the Amazons and the Googles that are flexible and kind of more modern than legacy ones, they are around 35% more energy efficient than those legacy data centers, mostly because of how they achieve that cooling. Uh, this is something actually that you know my kids are really into about having a gaming setup and all the different technologies that exist for cooling off the you know the core in your desktop. You can have like liquid cooling versus air cooling. Uh, and so how you do that is a huge impact on your energy use. Now one Really interesting opportunity that exists that being done primarily in Europe, um, but not as much in the US is about, it's called waste heat capture. And that's where you say, rather than simply just doing traditional air conditioning, where you, you spend energy to evacuate heat into the atmosphere, like around, let's say the, the, uh, the facility, you actually capture that heat in water and you route it to, you know, nearby buildings, either homes or businesses that, that have heating needs. And you kind of use that heat for that purpose. It, it makes the data center way more energy efficient. Um, never to com- complete efficiency, but you can get a-, a lot of the way there. And so Microsoft, Amazon, Meta are all doing this in Europe, primarily in, in Scandinavia, where it's happening the most. So energy efficiency is-, is a big part of it. But a lot of these providers, Google, Microsoft, they're in the, the new 24-7 carbon-free energy compact uh, that came out of the UN, I believe, like a year and a half ago. But if you think about it, even if these large data center providers were to procure 24-7 clean energy, they enter into PPAs to kind of cover all their annual energy usage, there is inevitably going to be a profile mismatch between when you know renewable energy is producing and when and data center loads, which I don't know offhand, but I imagine that they are, if not being flat, then they're fairly steady. And there will be periods where they are well eclipsing any sort of local renewable energy. And let's say before we get to this you know massive macro sort of regional transmission that can import renewable energy from far away. So I think a really interesting approach is that cloud consumers themselves, sorry, cloud customers, those who are running applications in Amazon. So think of large retail businesses, large e-commerce sites, everybody, our company, you know, by running code that is flexible enough to run when renewables are producing, you can make things much easier on the data center rather than pushing all of the obligation to that data center. And an an example here, if you think about AI or, or kind of machine learning in general, there are different aspects of the workflow. If you're training a machine learning algorithm, you have a step that involves just kind of processing the data. You have a step where you are training your model by running lots and lots of exposing it to data and having it adjust. And then finally, you have the step where you actually invoke the model to do 
whatever it is that you do, maybe because a customer you know clicked on your retail website. So those first two steps are usually run and batch, meaning they're, they're run kind of lots of steps together and kind of somewhat arbitrarily every day. But if those were run specifically at these kind of opportune moments, it would dramatically improve the ability of a data center to match its profile with renewable energy. And you can't do that with the kind of third piece of when you invoke the model, um, because that has to happen when it happens, because it's usually based on customers. But there's a lot of flexibility. And there's even a name for this. I I was speaking to um, the head of sustainability for a major B2B cloud platform, and they refer to it as green code. And I think that's a really exciting concept that companies are thinking about. And I think it is a real opportunity for them to try to measure the kind of the emissions intensity of their code. It could be something that they, you know, showcase to investors and to customers as kind of a badge of honor in in being truly sustainable. You know, you touch on something that we've been hearing about for a while, but has really started to kind of ramp up over the past several months, and that's AI. You know, Matt, what role do you think AI plays, you know, than kind of what Ben had talked about in the power markets? Yeah, I mean, the uh, momentum of AI and the notoriety of AI has, has been growing exponentially. I, I am a little, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a skeptic. I would say that we're in the very early stages of AI. And um, even if you think through the like chat GPT uh, from an, a pure AI perspective, it even has a long way to go. But at the end of the day, you can't have one without the other. I mean, quite honestly, um, I know a lot of firms out there, asset managers, traders, they are trying to become more sophisticated and, and building models and let's say more automated reactionary type models because we are in the middle of a data explosion. Um, and what I mean by that is there, there's just too much data out there right now for a human being to read, understand, and then react before it's too late. Or read, under, understand, misstep, create a wrong action, and all of a sudden um, you're, you're putting yourself into positions in various markets that you really should not be doing. So I think there, as we're moving through this and, and understanding and expanding of ingesting the amount of data that's out there, you need to also think through the different technologies that you deploy. Uh, there's a lot of the sophisticated firms out there are looking at brand new technologies uh, that are available to the public. The, the legacy or traditional data stores and, and, and data delivery engines just don't cut it anymore. There's exciting companies out there and there's a company called FeatureBase that's really working to try to digitize the data and, and be able to deliver that data as quickly as possible. Um, there's other companies that are just trying to turn data into information as much as a cliche that is. Uh, that, that is um, very important in making these transactions. But at the end of the day, the sophisticated firms, again, are, are ingesting these, this mass amount of data. Uh, they're building machine learning models. Uh, again, I'm a little hesitant to call it AI, but more leading towards machine learning models that can ingest the amount of data required for it to act in these markets appropriately. And, and it's a really uh, Herculean task to do that because it's, there's a lot of variables within these markets. There are real environmental impacts, uh, weather, climate is still a huge impact of these markets. Uh, there are human beings at these, uh, these various uh, utilities and ISOs and other power plant operators making decisions there. Um, so what you're looking at is trying to bring in as much disparate data sets as possible 
to inform your thing or your model to come up with your recommended actions uh, in these markets. So the ability to process that and get to, the, to those decisions are going to be very important. Um, and the only way to do that is through machine learning or some sort of models, or eventually, I mean, quite honestly, AI, once we get there. Uh, it is the only way that we'd be able to process and, and transact. I think that you know something that, Matt, you were alluding to, it's kind of driving this, as you call it, a data explosion, is there are just certain types of data that are available now that were not available before. And some of these are about sensor data, if we're talking about the grid and you know some of the sensors that we have, the kind of sensors directly on transmission lines, for instance. And so when you have new types of data that are very different from the ones that exist, it becomes really tricky to how do you accommodate that new opportunity represented by that data in existing models. And so machine learning is generally speaking about doing the same kind of optimization or modeling that people did before, just with kind of more parameters and more data. And so that's how you kind of very naturally get into this world because you have more weather data, higher resolution weather data, higher resolution energy meter data made possible by better communication networks. All of this kind of greater data volume that kind of requires you to not commit malpractice and kind of throw stuff away and to to, um, make the most of it. And that really requires more sophisticated more machine-based approaches to processing that data. And it just, as you said, it becomes impossible for a person to do that. You have all these different kind of modalities and that is what machine learning does. And so that to me is kind of why it is inevitable on the path we're on. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting too, because as these new customer segments come into this, that uh, as you touched on the high demand data centers, customers that need to understand these impacts, they're going to have their own internal data sets that they're going to want to feed into on top of uh, the publicly or, or vendor-related data they have. And as, as you have the behind-the-meter type build-out and, and additional data sets there, you can, you can just see the problem compounding on itself as we become more diverse and more, i say, sophisticated grid and the supporting systems to manage all that. You know, Ben, one of the terms that we hear a lot also is digital twin. Can you walk us through what a digital twin is and how that impacts the digitalization of the grid and works with machine learning? Yes. This is just a kind of a natural continuation of this, you know, what we've been speaking about so far, you know, like with many other things like AI itself, it's sometimes you just create kind of a term that is just a little bit of window dressing on top of something that already existed. A digital twin really is just a software model of a physical system. So you can make digital twins of a smart thermostat or a battery or a power plant or with the entire grid. It can kind of exist at all scales. And these are the sort of elements that are the basis for how you model and how you optimize assets in the field. Again, the entire grid, whether it's distribution system, a transmission system, or maybe a portfolio, a trading portfolio. And it's used, they're increasingly used by utilities, let's say, in their operations, but also in planning um, because they let you answer hypotheticals. Like given my model of how my grid works, what if I do this? What if I invest more here? Or what if latency were to increase over here? So for some examples, AEP is working on building a digital twin of its entire transmission system, uh, working with Siemens on that. And the idea there is that all uh, departments at the utility had a single model to work with. I think that's something that many might find surprising that at utilities, there's also often multiple copies of, of things like kind of network maps that can get out of sync and some can become kind of deprecated or kind of fall behind. And so having one common model that encapsulates all the data you know about your system and that everybody can use is a huge sort of way of reducing own goals, so to speak, in terms of like, you know, how you operate as a utility. Europe is really 
behind this type of initiative. So they have, among you know, many kind of related initiatives, uh, they have a, a digitalization action plan that's allocating 170 billion euro to digitalize the the grid, including creating a digital twin for the entire European grid. And I think there's a lot of ambition there. I know that that is still very early, and and they're still building some of the initial capabilities of what you know, kind of piece by piece of of the, of the different countries and different kind of territories and some of the early outcomes that you get from doing that. Like maybe it is about detecting where DERs are rather than you know orchestrating them or or kind of taking action. So I think there's a lot of excitement in doing this. Where machine learning comes into the picture, why that's related to digital twins and why we often hear them together is that if you think about a model for whether it's a an EV charger or it's a behind the meter, like a smart thermostat and with an air conditioner attached, there are many parameters to that model that are going to be different for each instance. Maybe one home over here behave, looks very differently and behaves very differently than a home over here. And so often there are lots of parameters to be solved for and machine learning is the type of approach that you can use to you know, do the optimal job of, of calibrating those digital twins so that when you then turn to optimize them, you had those accurate picture. Well, I appreciate you guys both coming on the show. It's, it's been really interesting. Any kind of last minute thoughts or comments, Matt? I think one theme that you've heard throughout this discussion is we need to keep up to the energy transition and the renewable penetration that's going on with additional systems and with additional oversight and and basically provide the tools to um, however the individual market participants are transacting. Uh, flying blind is not going to cut it. It, it. These folks need to understand what's happening on the grid. It's There's real world impacts. Uh, I be living here in Austin, Texas. A few years ago, we experienced the freeze and there's many layers of failure that happened that caused that. And a lot of it is just due to not understanding by the disparate parties on what's going on. So I would just say and encourage, and I think what you heard throughout this entire conversation, that as we move forward, we have to continue to push the edges of sophistication and, and understanding of what's happening in real time on the grid, uh, what's happening at these new suppliers of power, and, and, and then ultimately what's happening at these places that are pulling all this power off the grid and how can we potentially all work together to minimize those summer peaks so we don't have a brown on a blackout situations, but at the same time, be as economical as possible and be as friendly to the earth as possible on, on satisfying our needs. Ben, any final thoughts? I think it's important for kind of all stakeholders across our space, whether you're on the technology side or the investor side or the utility side or regulator, um, to think hard about infrastructure and kind of to appreciate. I, I think we spend a lot of time thinking about things like assets, holes and wires, physical stuff, which are critical. And we've seen in the last couple of years following COVID that when stuff doesn't arrive, you don't have enough of it, it's a huge problem. Um, so I don't want to minimize the challenges faced by insufficient kind of physical infrastructure that we need, especially, I'll say again, transmission. But digital infrastructure is a real thing. It's becoming increasingly important. And I think some of the most sophisticated people working in this space really think of it as a key kind of fulcrum. It's something that lets you take a kind of very finite quantity, like a finite amount of uh, renewable generation or distribution poles and wires, and do much, much more with it. And so we need to be investing more time, more you know, people's effort and brain power, and more investment in that type of activity because it really is not second to 
the physical infrastructure itself. And I can say that talking to investors, um, not just kind of you know venture capitalists who, of course, are thinking about these kinds of things and interested in these companies, but private equity, uh, even infrastructure funds who are looking more at more traditional assets are really started to ask questions and gain interest in this type of new infrastructure, realizing that it's going to play such a critical part in the kind of system that we're building. And if we're going to like ask the grid to operate in a way that it hasn't before, which is what we're doing, it's going to be critical that these systems are in place and that we have the funding, the technology, and the regulations that um, support it. Well, thank you both again for joining us on the show. Interesting topic and really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks so much. I'm David Banmiller, and this is The Interchange Recharged. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts and suggestions for topics we should look at on future episodes. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Interchange Show. See you next time.